I'm um, currently re-watching Star Trek Voyager Season 2, Episode 3, Projections. And uh, I don't know where the episode's going. I really can't remember it. And that's actually kind of the fun of all this, is uh, episodes that I haven't... Um, I, I just don't don't remember a lot of the series, and uh, who knows? I mean, series may have changed since I watched it the first time. That's... Sliders did that, where the entire last three seasons of it, I have no clue. You know, I I never watched any of the had never watched any of the episodes. The episodes weren't the same that I watched the first time, so it's quite possible this is the same way. In any case, um, the in this episode, the uh, doctor, uh, he's a electro. They call him a electronic or uh, what is it? EMH trying to think of the designation emergency medical hologram and the he's programmed with the biology of a thousand different uh, different types of beings and everything so he can actually diagnose and do anything so basically he's WebMD and a doctor and uh, he'll go through and he'll prescribe and help people and that kind of stuff and everything and um, the interesting thing is uh, it's I've realized as I've been watching this that it's actually a simulation. That the whole goal seems to be to inspire this EMH, this medical hologram, to have self-sentiency, to have self-control. And a lot of uh, Voyager seems like this way to begin with. But it's really interesting that you know this whole goal to you know help help him realize and gain his sentiency and his self-awareness is uh, interesting, you know, so it starts off, um, the, the, the tells are pretty simple, you know, where there's little flaws in the simulation, um, you know, intentional flaws, you know, clues to give him the ability to be able to recognize that there's something going on, you know, um, not, not just that he's in a projected environment, um, but also that, uh, there's something else going on. So the projected environment aspect of things is, the tricorders, the handheld uh, recorders uh, that are actually held by the crew, um, don't uh, actually read other humanoids at first. So uh, I'm only 17 minutes into it, never 14 minutes into it. Um, the dumbing down of the Talaxian, or not Talaxian, but the uh, Kazon uh, fight, a battle scene, and everything. And Kazon are fierce warriors and everything, but. This war that, or this battle between him and uh, between one of the Kazons and Neelix is just funny at best and everything. And it, the whole situation so contrived in a funny way that, you know, you could certainly question is this a different writer, you know, from an acting perspective, you know, thinking about this being on a set? Well, that's one perspective. Another perspective is this is just a glimpse into an alternate reality. And the question is which alternate reality is it in? Well, this alternate reality is basically a simulation in itself. You know, it's actually the doctor, and they're inspiring the doctor to have some self, you know, some level of self-sufficiency, and not only that, but but encouraging him to integrate within the crew and everything, and more than a capacity of of simply providing services. You know, he's going to be socially responsible for interacting with the crew and everything. So. That's that's what I suspect it's for. It's really interesting. So I'm gonna continue the episode and everything, but I thought I'd just you know do that. You know, so how would you train you know something that is humanoid? 
or human looking. Um, whether or not that's a robot, a cyborg, uh, you know, a electrical or emergency medical hologram that actually has a physical appearance and is photonically generated. How would you actually create the bedside manner? Well, you can't program it, right? You have to do it through a series of interactions and everything, you know, and help the thing, um, whatever it is, the, the quasi-sentient life form and everything, help it encourage it through a series of interactions that actually teaches it the way to act and the way not to act. You know, here's here's what you do, here's what you don't do. You know, and it learns through a set of social social stimulation provided by its environment around it. So, you know, I mean, and, and you can't do this, you know, through programming. You could certainly program some of the logical flow you know, of some things, you know, from a, a sentient perspective. You could certainly program some of this, but some of the programming will ultimately, once that life form finds sentiency, it's my belief, will will tend to reject some of that programming. And, uh, you know, what what programming should it be entitled to reject? Well, you do this through the, you know, through a social stimulation, through a program, or through direct interaction. You know, and just basically say, hey, here's how you, you know, the best way for you to be, and this is how we like you to fit into our society. Well, you're not required to fit into our society, you know, but here's, generally speaking, the best, um, the operating methods, you know, and present situations where these robotic life forms or artificially intelligent life forms have the cap capacity and capability to be able to have those kind of um, interactions in a non-programmed way. I mean, it's still a little bit programmed, you know, because the whether or not you're creating a program to stimulate it around it, or you've got humans that are working off their own roadmap and program, you're still having this interaction and everything based on a program per se, you know, a, a goal-oriented deal is nothing more than what a program is to some degree. So, anyways, I'll continue later. So I'm 22 minutes into it, and uh, it's the same episode. Here's the, uh, so it actually gets into discussions where now he's Dr. Dr. Zimmerman. He's the actual programmer of the EMH to begin with, and Lieutenant Barclay is actually his assistant that actually is, uh, has just projected himself in. So... Uh, anyways, just prior to this, uh, the EMEH uh, was working with uh, the rest of the crew and everything to try to bring the starship up to uh, up to speed and everything. Um, the starship had been taken over and every, or had actually um, had just just narrowly avoided a warp core uh, problem. And what ended up happening at this point was the doctor worked with uh, Captain Janeway and also Lieutenant Torres in order to start trying to restore the ship systems and everything. Well, as they're going through and doing this, um, they end up, uh, Zim, Zim, well, the EMH ends up getting hit by that Kazon, the firefight that I was describing over with Neelix and everything. 
he got hit by the Kazon, and as a result, he started bleeding, and he's just like, what the fuck, you know, I mean, him and Neelix both are, you know, this isn't a part of my program, you know, and ouch, there's pain, I haven't been programmed to feel pain, you know, so he ends up uh, going to the, to the, uh, was it the uh, sick, sick bay, to more or less have himself looked at by himself, so he actually leverages Tricor and some machinery, and all of a sudden he starts realizing there's, uh, he's doing vital scans of himself, and he has a heart, he's not supposed to have a heart, he's, he's got all these internal organs, he's got a brain, and it's just like, okay, this is really weird, I'm an electrical, or, you know, emergency medical, medical hologram, I'm not supposed to have all these interior things, and why is it I'm bleeding, I'm not supposed to bleed, you know, so he, all, for all intents and purposes, he's got, you know, symptoms, of being human. So, all of a sudden, at this point, this is when Taurus and Janeway and a couple other crew members come in, and uh, he's he's doing, at this point, he's he's learning that the ship regards him not as an as emergency medical hologram, but as a real-life person. He he actually tries to, tries to actually, you know, disable the emergency medical hologram, which is himself, and it's not disabledable. So uh, there's the ship indicates that there's no such so, no such program. So as he's looking into it, all of a sudden he you know he starts looking looking into it a little bit further, and that's when Janeway and them come in. Sorry, I'm going in round roundabout way. I'm still waking up here. And uh, at this point, they're trying to get to the bottom of why he's bleeding real quickly. And all of a sudden, Janeway says, computer, you know, she, she goes, disable medical hologram, that didn't work. Computer, disable all holographic systems. And all of a sudden, boom, Janeway, Taurus, all of them disappear completely. In, in the, you know, the doctor is still there. So that's when Barkley comes in, and Barkley claims that uh, he's um, he's the original designer of the electric, uh, emergency medical hologram, and he's actually at this Jupiter station in a simulation, and all of this all the ship is an entire simulation about what's going on, and he's Barkley has been trying to get him out for six hours, and he goes, well the doctor responds, you know, that's impossible, you know, I've spent six months doing this. You know, how can how can all this be a simulation? That's impossible. You know, I've been in here for six months, and Barclay protests that he's been in there for, you know, for only six hours. Well, this is actually a really interesting depiction of uh, the relativity of time. You know, so in this instance right here, he actually is one and the same as Zimmerman. Well, he's got a different life and a different mind that he's, you know, that he's undergone. And, you know, part of an experiential journey of being an EMH, you know, and at this point, you know, I mean, I know that he persists in the show and everything, you know, and he may accept the new life that he's given for himself, which is nothing more than a doctor that's activatable on a, uh, on a journey across the stars and everything. But uh, that, uh, the interesting thing to me about all this, uh, I'm only 22, uh, you know, 22 minutes into it, is it it's kind of flopping in time. You know, so the whole concept and idea of uh, time is, you know, is is each scene um, accurate, an accurate display of that time period. You know, so the first scene, you know, where he's going through and he's he's the only one on board the vessel. You know, and then all of a sudden he discovers everybody's a hologram. Well, you know, he's in a simulation. Clearly, he's in a simulation. 
and uh, you know it's that's one possibility um, the other possibility is yes he's actually Barkley or he's actually not Barkley he's Zimmerman a Dr. Zimmerman he's actually been programming the EMH you know with all the knowledge of of all the different uh, records and everything and you know he's actually been stuck in the simulation for what feels like six months you know but it's basically a way to rapidly acquire information you know and then return six hours later you know basically say hey I, I did all this you know and <laughs> you know I mean that's the, the interesting possibility here you know is the relativity of time associated to the individual you know so to the EMH he's only spent uh, you know everybody else perceives him as only been in there six hours where he's been in there six months already you know and he's acquired six months worth of information already I find that fascinating you know, as Spock would say you know so and neither perspective is inaccurate either you know so if he is indeed Hans Zimmerman you know I mean I'm sure the episodes gonna unfold to where there's a supposed rational you know, logical reason from a, a non-relativity framework, but from a relativity perspective, you know, the time and relativity and everything, I'm suspecting that um, something happened with the warp core, which may have actually warped space and time for everybody, you know, and caused this ripple effect to basically make it so where he's, the doctor's actually seeing the development of his own program through the mind of his maker, you know, which is Dr. Zimmerman. And uh, he actually, he sees an event that really happened to the doctor himself. And uh, maybe, you know, this actually caused the doctor to, you know, to forget about those things. Um, and and that becomes a part of the, the new doctor, the EMH's um, experience, experiences. You know, so what the doctor, Dr. Zimmerman, forgets becomes a part of the life of the EMH. So that's a, that's a suspicion. That's just you know a suspicion on the relativity of time and you know and uh, potentially the what a warp core breach really means. You know, which is if it can't hold together the integrity of the starship. You know, which it's a little bit of a hint on what a warp core is. basically holds together many, many, many different realities uh, from a temporal perspective. So I'm kind of curious. It's an interesting episode. I'm currently watching uh, season two, episode four, Elogium. Um, it's not as interesting as last episode. In the last episode's resolution, I'll let you uh, see for yourself if you actually want to watch it. But this one, uh, years ago, I was playing Star Trek Online. And um, I I had... <laughs> the funny thing was, I had just eaten Cheerios. And as I'm flying through uh, Star Trek Online, I see this... I, I'm going through this part of space and everything in Star Trek Online, and I see this massive asteroid that I'm flying uh, flying through. And as I as I look at it and more or less uh, see where I had just come from, um, and the starship that I'm flying is supposed to be like a thousand, uh, no, three hundred uh, three hundred meters in length, 
I think that's how, how long they are. Hold on a second. What is the length of the USS Voyager? So mine was comparable in size to the USS Voyager. And the USS Voyager is 345 meters in length. So, and I'm just going to read this little blurb on uh, from Google. So, the Voyager, USS, an intrepid-class vessel capable of uh, holding 200 crew members. USS Voyager, NCC-74656, is one of the fastest and most powerful starships in Starfleet. Although only 345 meters long, about half the size of the USS Enterprise, uh, it goes on to say a whole bunch of stuff. Is more techno yeah, NCC... 1701-D. Voyager is more technologically advanced than previous Starfleet vessels. So it's uh, made specifically for um, exploration and research. And the uh, vessel that I was using inside Starship or Star Trek Online is um, it's a different class. I think it's called a Celestial class uh, Starship. Hold on a second. What are the science? vessels, because it's uh, strictly a science vessel, so it's a science exploration vessel. Star Trek. And uh, it's, yeah, there it is. It's the uh, bulbish, um, this one's called the, yeah, it might be a Dale, I'm not too sure how to pronounce this, Daedalus. Oh no, this is a temporal class, so mine's not temporal. Um, it's an earlier version of the same same design. So, I do think it's... Hold on a second. Fleet Vessel, Retro Class. And personally, I think it's a really cool looking ship. It's unique, it's... Um, design and I could bring it up I mean I've still got access to it and everything so science vessel research science vessel oh it's it's called Olympic class let's make sure because I think it's the only one that's available for that Olympic class <coughs> So there's varying different levels of Olympic class vessels. And uh, the Olympic class one that I'm having, it doesn't have a length on it, I don't think. Let's see. Yeah, I would estimate its length at probably being about the same length it's, uh, as the... Um, as the uh, Voyager, so about 350 to 400 meters long, um, and it's a, it could carry a contingent of 700 people comfortably. So it's, uh, but anyways, as I was flying through this asteroid, uh, I looked back and I saw this. Uh, I started seeing the overall shape of it, and I had realized, wait a second, that looks like a half, a half uh, eaten Cheerio. So I kind of laughed because as I went further and further, I just looked back and this thing looks like it's, um, 
it, it looks like it's not a half-eaten Cheerio, but uh, more or less something that's starting to be dissolved, you know, through <laughs> the stomach fluid acids. And I'm just like, on, wow, what an interesting perspective. You know, here I am flying. The, I had eaten this Cheerio this morning, and for me, this tiny little thing, you know, that's no bigger than, I mean, we're talking, if you want to put it in, in, in terms relative to me, you know, what, two centimeters? No, not even that. Two. Yeah, maybe two centimeters. Hold on. So it's 2.54 centimeters to the inch. So, yeah, maybe only about one centimeter. So it's about one centimeter round. Saying that was one centimeter round, but inside this Star Trek Online, from the Star Trek Online perspective and from my ship's perspective, this thing was literally, uh, I mean, I'll go so far to say maybe four kilometers across. So, and this is actually what I, you know, how I, how I see you know, the universe, I, I suspect that this is, you know, really, I'm seeing different perspectives on the same things, you know, and sometimes the same things, you know, like a Cheerio to me, half dissolved in, you know, the fluid in my stomach and everything, you know, and here I am flying this miniature little satellite or this miniature little vessel around and I see that same Cheerio that I just ate this morning, you know, and it's absolutely massive, you know, from this alternative perspective and everything. I I find it absolutely you know fascinating. So it, it, what brought it up was in Star Trek Voyager um, Elogium. Um, it's there there within this section of space that there's all these little uh, <laughs> things floating around and swimming in space. Now they don't necessarily you know from their perspective they they could, you know, there's, these things are big, they're huge, they're massive, you know, and from my perspective, these could potentially be the same things that were, you know, floating in my stomach that were, that may eat, that these could be tiny little microbes that are eating that Cheerio and just basically consuming the things that, you know, further breaking things down, the things that I ate this morning and everything. You know, so I, I just find the perspective fascinating, you know, interesting and everything, you know, and um, not just the relativity of, of space, you know, but uh, also these things have the capability to move at, you know, a thousand kilometers per second. Well, you know, relative to me, you know, that's moving like at one inch per hour. You know, so to a starship, it may appear ultra fast, but to me, it appears, you know, from my perspective, ultra slow. You know, so speed and relative velocity are really two fascinating subjects to me. You know, so let's say you have the capability to be able to re re be reduced down in size. You know, or I have the capability to be able to re be reduced down in size from my six foot two down to a relative size of maybe one millimeter tall. Well, when I'm walking, you know, for me, the the speed that I'm walking is going to be relative to me. So my speed, my size, to me, is still going to be six foot two. You know, but to somebody observing me from the outside, I would now be one millimeter in, in height. And and furthermore, you know, when I walk, 
my walking speed, you know, and the mileage. I have two different potential, you know, frames of uh, reference when it comes down to uh, to distance and everything. Now, if I, you know, I mean, from the six foot two standpoint, I can run a mile and maybe, you know, I mean, right now, <laughs> not too good. I can maybe do a fourteen, you know, twelve, a twelve to fourteen minute mile, you know, maybe a little bit less, but. <laughs> You know, the fact is, I can still do it in under 15 minutes, you know, even at a brisk walk, I could do it in under 15 minutes, where, you know, let's say I get reduced down to the size of one millimeter. Now, who is that, who is that mile relative to? You know, that's actually the, the big question that's, that has to be asked. You know, it's, if it's relative to an outside observer, you know, and the mile is the mile that I saw previously, well, of course I'm going to have a problem you know, running that mile on anything under, you know, what could be potentially, you know, I don't know, 50 days, you know, to literally run what was one mile before, you know, so if I'm reduced down to the size of one millimeter, you know, and that's, you know, or let's, let's put it in terms of inches, a one, one tenth of an inch. So if I go from, you know, six foot two, which is 74 inches, you know, I reduce myself down to one-tenth of an inch. That's 740 times size, uh, you know, si times less than my current size right now. Well, I have to increase the amount of time that it takes to actually travel that same distance, you know, by 740 times. So 740 times 15, you know, that would give me the relative time, you know, that it actually takes, you know, to complete that mile. And uh, I'm just putting this in relative frames of time and everything. Oh, what's what? What would it be? Yes, calc. I'm on the slow machine right now. Seven forty times. 15. So 11,100 minutes, so, or 185 hours, or let's put this in terms of days, 7.7 .7 solid days of walking would actually get me that mile if I'd been reduced down in scale to one-tenth of an inch. So, but, but the question really is, you know, is, um, distance relative, and, and I, I do believe it is, you know, so that Cheerio, you know, from the distance is, uh, is equally as relative to the size of that, uh, you know, to the size of that, that starship, and that starship is 350 meters long, well, distance is relative as well, so, anyways, found that, I found it, find it fascinating, so, as they're, as I'm watching microbes attack this thing, and, or attack the ship, and, uh, to me, these things are literally lining the stomach of my intestines, and that, or my stomach of my intestines. I mean, that's one perspective, so, they, they could also be in somebody else's body for all I know. Something else I, I just thought of, but uh, as I'm playing Watch Dogs 2, they had a uh, really uh, kind of like an interesting point of where you ha have to uh, 
I'm going through playing the game and just basically playing it from more or less um, not doing the main storyline, doing everything but the main storyline until I actually finish all the extracurricular activity and everything. And they have money bags that are placed all over the world, um, and usually it's in you know difficult to um, get locations. Most of the time it's relatively easy, but sometimes it's in really kind of like interesting locations. Now I just found one that was really interesting where uh, there's two sloped um, solar towers that actually uh, lead to the really tall roof of something. And usually buildings like this, there's something, uh, a way to get to it, uh, leveraging cranes or um, platforms that actually elevate or forklifts, etc., etc., or being able to pull up a, a big tall bus right next to the building side and being able to jump on things in order to be able to get up into it. Well, in this case, the building's too tall. I mean, it's uh, the point um, that I've got to get to. It's about four stories up there, and um, there's no there's no things I can use in order to be able to get up to that point. So I just, uh, <laughs> it was interesting because I drove a bus up next to one of the sloped, uh, slope fronts, uh, used that to use my jumper, it's an RC robot that can jump, and uh, did it accelerated and just basically ran him off of the sloped uh, solar um, tower things, or sloped uh, solar tower roofs and ended up uh, going from one to the other, skipping on one to the other until I actually got to the top of the building. It's an interesting uh, design and everything. I, I love the creativity for this thing. Um, it really does inspire me, you know, to actually want to make want to make my own and everything. So, in a bit, um, I actually thought of an idea to, uh, to go through all the... Uh, a whole, whole bunch of magic, the gathering cards and as a mental exercise come up with a way to uh, just basically say hey I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go through and uh, leverage these cards and think about what I can do from a hacking perspective to basically reinforce this from a programmatic uh, a programmed perspective how can I implement this and what way can I implement this in the real world and everything so anyways just uh, some thoughts That, if you can't tell, is the sound of me getting in the car. I'm going to pick up some hamburger buns and pickles for going to make hamburgers tonight. My mom, she's having a, a fun colonoscopy tomorrow. And note the sarcasm. Colonoscopies are not fun. And uh, it requires you to be on a liquid diet for basically 48 hours beforehand. So, anyways, uh, me and my dad, I was just like looking at the, uh, I don't want to make something, you know, one of those big dishes that I've been making and everything without including my mom in it. And I was going to make chicken fingers, some homemade chicken fingers, you know, with the uh, hot, so hot sauce and everything. I'm trying to help her get her sense of taste. So, anyway, she's getting there. She could definitely taste spice, and I think the thing is she's misinterpreting um, her mouth and her her body is misinterpreting um, the signals of taste and interpreting them all, anything that's tasty, 
uh, as salty. So we had a blackened chicken, uh, or blackened uh, tilapia the other night, and it was, I mean, it, w- it wasn't salty at all. It's just basically one teaspoon of salt for the entire meal, and um, she complained about it tasting too salty. Well, my dad, he's um, he's a... Uh, He's on high blood pressure medication, and I'm, I've been watching out for the sodium and basically um, using no to low sodium on everything I make. So if I can avoid using salt at all, um, I will, you know, altogether avoid it and uh, let him salt to taste, you know, and uh, that's what we do too. And I've actually been finding myself enjoying it, you know, uh, doing that, you know, the whole salt to taste and everything. You know, so it's uh, get, it's challenging me to, you know, to eat the food and everything without actually adding salt and everything. But my mom complained it. I found it curious how she complained the other day about the, the blackened chicken tasting too salty. Well, it was, it had a lot of spices to it. You know, it had um, some cayenne pepper in there and she's not even had, you know, she's had more cayenne pepper in the things that she's eaten that I've uh, given her. Um, we had a... Uh, it was basically a Cajun pasta last week that uh, I ended up uh, creating. Um, but uh, yeah, this one, it was just like like last night's meal, for instance. I, I thought I fucked it up. I dropped the ball on it. I mean, it really... Um, I made pepper steak, but the problem is it's the first time I cooked in a wok. And what ended up happening was I ended up... Um, it's the first time I'd cooked in a wok, really. You know, so I actually... Turning it on to high heat, and at that point, uh, once I ended up doing that... You know, you've, you've got to cook the meat for three minutes per side maximum. And not even that. You know, it's just basically it's three minutes for the meat. Well, problem is the, so- the sauce for the stuff, um, which contains uh, sugar, it actually ended up coating the bottom of the pan and very quickly uh, started, uh, you know, started to actually burn. And it really permeated the meat. And on, in my opinion, it fucking ruined the meal. Well, for me, it did. Um, I I was just not happy with it. The sauce was actually tasting pretty good, and then all of a sudden that happened. It's just like, well, shit. How do I avoid this the next time? Well, you know, next time I even get the remote sense that that this thing is cauterizing, you know, cauterizing, I just basically take everything out of the pan and uh, and scrape it off and everything, because it's, you know, doing what it did. Well, my mom, she couldn't taste the, the burn-dished aftertaste. And while it wasn't horrible and the food was still um, edible, the problem is it used, I still tasted it throughout it. So I just wasn't happy with the way it turned out and everything altogether. And uh, I ended up turning around and just basically saying, okay, um, well, my dad, you know, surprised me, and uh, he, you know, he didn't find take that much issue with it. <laughs> it's just like, uh, me, it's a different story altogether. I just, it was one of my most unsatisfactory meals I've cooked yet. But my mom, you know, she actually liked it better than the uh, the Cajun the Cajun stuff, which got me to thinking last night. Last night's had soy sauce, which we all know contains salt in it, heavy heavy degree of salt in it, and a couple of other uh, things that were a little bit salty as well. And it, you know, oddly enough, she found the Cajun. She kept commenting about the salt. Well, here's the thing that I think. You know, sometimes people's senses can be miswired, fundamentally miswired, and I think that's a part of what makes us, you know, human too. Is there's there's fundamental differences, and this is actually something I started thinking about the other night. You know, when I had a hard time when I I was uh. 
um, going out with uh, Rachel, you know, briefly, the few times that we ended up sharing and everything, um, I kept thinking to myself, how do I deserve a woman like that? You know, I knew deep down inside that I did, and uh, I actually had somebody had the audacity to actually ask me that question about Kenna when I was dating her. You know, Kenna's gorgeous. You know, she's got big old boobs, you know, size D boobs, and uh, just gorgeous, and she's, you know, just playful and all this other fun stuff and everything, and, you know, yet she, you know, I had this one, you know, little dickish of a man, you know, that I ended up trying to befriend and everything later. I shouldn't have... Probably shouldn't have, but, you know, it is what it is. But in any case, this guy, um, you know, he made this comment, how is it I deserve somebody like Kenna? Well, me and Kenna, we got along. It was just, you know, two, we, we complemented each other well. Very, very different personalities, and that's actually what made things fun. Um, and not only that, but I was really, I'm really good at what I do, you know, when it comes down to programming and, and IT type stuff and everything. And, you know, there's very few people I consider that... Uh, are, you know, cap as capable as I am. Now, I'm not saying I'm the greatest that ever lived or anything like that. I know people that are good at, uh, are very, very good at one certain thing, but when it comes down to understanding how everything fits together and, and uh, proficiency across the board and everything, I know very few people that actually have proficiency across the board. You know, the whole saying, jack of all trades, master of nothing and everything. But, you know, it's, when it comes down to it, it's just like, it's, it's like your senses, um, they, they're programmed. You know, that's, that's the way I look at, uh, have a tendency to look at the world. Everything is programmable, and with that, it's also reprogrammable, too. You know, now my mom, she's complained um, and discussed her, and even joked at and laughed at um, the fact that she doesn't, uh, she doesn't have a sense of taste, and, and with that, she doesn't have a, ten, a, sen, a sense of smell. You know, so it's not like it's my job to fix people or anything like that. But my mom, I actually do care about. Not only that, but I know that she enjoys food. You know, so as a result, I've actually been sitting there thinking, hey, you know, um, if there's anything I can do psychologically to help her, you know, to be able to enable her to reprogram those senses, well, how would I go about doing that? You know, and it comes down to it's like a computer system, too. You know, I mean, my mind is effectively a computer system. I know that, you know, and I look at all other minds as being the same way. You know, data in, data out. But that data in um, influences, it, that's the difference between normal computer versus a, uh, you know, a mind. You know, a normal computer, it's literally a binary operation. You know, so where basically you've got if-then statements and all this other stuff and everything. Well, a human mind is a lot more complex because there's so many more variables that can actually get into it. You know, and, and if you're going to analogize, you know, computer-based systems and everything, you know, to human minds and everything, you're going to find a corollary based on sheer volume of information that can actually be presented within a system. You know, so the more complex the system gets, the more it actually appears, you know, to be organic, you know, or a better term for it, sentient. Um, you know, but uh, really when it comes down to it, I have the capability to be able to reprogram my own senses in the same fashion that I can actually reprogram other people's senses as well. So that's actually what I've been thinking about is how is it I can actually, you know, um, leverage my cooking skills um, as a programmer and effectively wake up her sense of taste. 
Now, when it comes down to it, her appetite, you know, she's got a, a pretty tremendous appetite. And the goal is certainly not to make it so where, you know, she eats more food, you know. Um, it, it just, um, I, I think the goal is to actually eat a little bit less and gain more satisfaction from that which you do eat. You know, so, and that's actually where the sense of taste and sense of smell comes in. So that's actually what I've been been thinking about is how is it I can actually help my mom knowing what I know as a programmer um, and leverage cooking as a programming, a, a sense of programming, um, a way to program the physical senses of the human body and everything and program, um, literally reprogram her, her senses to basically acquire a sense of taste and a sense of smell, you know, and the goal is to is to potentially, you know, help her make uh, help her life become a little bit more enjoyable. In the process, you know, she's she's uh, struggled with uh, weight problems her entire life and everything, and she's certainly struggling with it now, with it, uh, you know, causing her problems with her uh, her legs and you know her getting around and everything. So potentially, I can help her out, you know. So, anyways, I'll be back in a bit. Okay, I'm back. So, yeah, the whole concept of uh, reprogramming senses. Um, I did it to myself. Uh, years back, when I grew up, I had a hard time with broccoli. And uh, as, a, as a programmer, I started, started thinking, um, is it possible to reprogram my senses? And this is early on as a programmer. And uh, I did. I was successful um, taking my loathing of broccoli. I mean, I literally got to the point where every time I smelled it, I'd start gagging. And uh, I would eat it, and I would throw up. I reviled the substance. Absolutely hated the smell. Um, it smelled like dirty feet. Um, it mixed with uh, rotten eggs, you know, to me. So I just, I, for the life of me, you know, growing up and getting older, you know, up until the point I was about 22, 23, I uh, just had a hard time with it. And all of a sudden, you know, about uh, shortly after my, um, it was as I was going through my divorce, my wife told me I was inflexible, you know, and that uh, my ex-wife, and uh, that I was a control freak. And I'll be the first to admit I was a control freak. And... You know, I just, uh, for some reason, it clicked in my head. It's just like, well, wait. You know, I, I know, you know, that I'm, that I'm a jealous fucker. You know, and that uh, I can certainly use to lose some of that jealousy and everything. You know, but how? How does that start? That was some, some of the questions and everything that I had. You know, and uh, it just came down to, um, I started analyzing my own habits. You know, and I don't know what led me specifically to basically do the trial with broccoli, but I just realized that I I had a tendency not to um, to find enjoyment, and to some degree I found rebellion with some of the things that she really enjoyed. And there's two things that she enjoyed from a culinary perspective. One's olives and the other one's broccoli. Well, this trial was on broccoli. You know, I want to actually change my own personal behavior patterns concerning broccoli and everything. Can I actually reprogram my senses, you know, to 
to enjoy broccoli, or to, to not just eat it and find it edible, but, but also to take it one step further, potentially find enjoyment from the substance. So I did. And uh, what I ended up doing was I spent uh, the greater part of an evening in, alone in my place and everything, and uh, I first plugged my nose as I ate it, and at that point I got myself accustomed to the texture, and, you know, I'm just like, oh, it, it tastes gross. And that was part of the reason I, ended, I didn't, holy shit. Nice. Somebody just went through an intersection, almost got in a wreck. Um, so, you know, so that was the first thing I did. I plugged my nose, and I kept my nose plugged, you know, so I didn't smell it. And at that point, I got used to the texture. You know, I just took took in the sensation of the texture, and I, I started drawing mental analogies to things I enjoyed. You know, so rather than finding the texture of it disgusting, because it was a, a double whammy with, uh, with my not liking it. It was both the texture and the smell that just uh, nailed the shit out of me. So I, I first started drawing mental analogies, you know. So I started saying, okay, what does this... Uh, what's the texture feel like in my mouth of things that I enjoy? And uh, I started thinking, you know, there are certain cheesy substances. I remember going through a whole gamut of things that, you know, can can it has the texture that's similar, you know, to it. Um, you know, and then at that point, once I started realizing, it's just like, wait a second, you know, I got used to the texture really quick, you know, that way. And at that point, by drawing the mental analogy, it was easy to reprogram my own senses to overcome the texture of it. Well, next up was the uh, was the taste. How is it I can actually overcome the taste? You know, the repulsion to the taste of it, and and combined with that was the smell too. You know, um, you know, when I actually unplugged my nose, I had the sensation of smell and taste combined with it, and it was just like, okay, you know, um, and at that point, finding mental analogies was a little bit um, tougher, but what I started doing, rather than trying to find analogies with it, was I kept uh, thinking to myself, there's a lot of people that enjoy this smell, and instead, what can I find enjoyable about this smell. So rather than focusing on the odors of dirty socks and, uh, and you know, the, the whole concept of um, the rotten eggs and that kind of stuff, rather than, than focusing on that mentally as I ate it now, um, I ended up associating it with, uh, you know, the idea that I can actually share something in common, you know, and I'm also eating something healthier too. You know, so both of those thoughts, I actually kept actively thinking as I'm eating this, you know, this, what I formerly wasn't able to even be near because of the smell and, you know, God, God forbid the taste of it would actually just send me through the roof and I'd literally be hurling. Well, here I was literally within about three hours time, I was eating it. And uh, at that point, everything that I had, you know, from the reviled taste that I had to it before had completely all but disappeared. I found that actually pretty interesting, you know, that that quickly it's possible to actually reprogram my own personal senses. Well, other people aren't going to accept programming as readily as I am. You know, I mean, my mom certainly, you know, um, you know, because of the fact that I know she enjoys the tastes and everything, you know, but uh, she's not going to want to be told what to think. You know, so from my perspective as a programmer, how is it I can actually program the senses of people around me and everything? And um, as I was thinking about this today, I started thinking about choice. 
and the whole concepts of choice and everything. And uh, I don't know what, what really created this line of thought about reprogramming the senses and everything, but I started thinking about uh, the whole concept of if I was a time traveler, um, and I'm thinking of concepts that I can actually create for my version of Watch Dogs 5, which will be based out of Phoenix and everything, um, what can I do from a time traveling perspective to start... Um, start somebody down the path of actually understanding how time functions and everything, and um, maybe teach myself a little bit, little, little bit in the process too. Well, one of the things for certain would be to alter the fundamental choice. So let's say you have somebody that is fundamentally opposed to your perspectives and your views and everything, right here, right now, right this moment and everything. Well, if you had the capability to be able to alter time and you needed them, it was life, it was a, literally a life or death decision that, uh, that they needed to make to, to be able to, you, I mean, that's how you saw it, was it was basically a life or death, a binary choice, you know, that uh, it's either you do this or you die. You know, um, this person aligns with you or they, or they die. You know, and they don't understand um, why you would die in the process. You know, so getting them to align and to agree with you, you know, is one of the, is something that I've actually posited in the time travel. What if you can actually go back in time, create some key influential moments in somebody's life in the same way that my ex-wife um, influenced uh, my decision to actually indulge in broccoli? You know, so at that moment that I actually decide to reprogram my senses and everything, what if I can actually go back on somebody else's timeline and create key influential moments in their timeline to basically make it so where that decision that they're actually going to make with me, they have already drawn the mental conclusions um, based on prior experience, based on something that I may have gone home time traveled to make that change and everything to their history and then gone to them the next day where all of a sudden they draw upon this mental analogy you know from the past and they sit there and say you know what I was thinking about things and you know what you're right I'm I'm gonna I'll go along with you you know now what they don't know, you know, is that you time travel to go back in time to basically alter the circumstance and, and create that analogy for the first time that never existed. You know, so let's say you can do it far easier by, let's say, you know, they just go through an experience of where, you know, there's somebody they care about and everything who, let's say you alter time ever so slightly to basically make it so where they enjoy broccoli. And that's something that, you know, for some reason becomes a big deal for them. Well, boom, in the future, you know, your indulgence in, in broccoli is contingent, you know, on a life or death situation. I know this is far-fetched and everything, but let's just say that uh, that's how it functions and everything, and boom. You know, because of that alteration to the past and everything, that calls, causes an alteration in the future, and be all because they can actually draw a mental analogy based on a past event that actually happened in order to, be, to alter the current time period and everything. So, the drawing of mental analogies. Anyways, um, I'll continue later. I'm back home. Okay, here I am again. Um, I just saw the time. It's 5.11. Um, my mom is on that diet, as I said. Well, it's not a diet. It's just a, a one-day dealy bob where she's 
got to do her stuff and everything. Take her lemon sorbet and her popsicles and basically, uh, well, that's actually why I'm, don't you love it? And trying to think and talk at the same time. Sometimes it works, sometimes it just doesn't. So anyways, um, no, so my mom's on that, uh, on that funky colonoscopy diet, which basically reduces everything to, uh, nothing more than liquids that, uh, she can take and everything. So, she's hungry, you know, clearly. And, uh, it's tomorrow morning that, she, that she's doing it. So she just tried making herself a, um, a jello, uh, what is it, a jello, uh, kind of like a smoothie. And needless to say, it didn't go over too well. One could predict that, couldn't they? So, anyways, um, I'm running to the store to pick her up some lemon sorbet and uh, some popsicles. So hopefully, while it's not going to, you know, at least she'll get a little flavor. That's actually kind of odd, isn't it? It's not like the flavor's not... Yeah. It's like her senses are are responding. But her mind's not getting it. So does that make sense? So basically, um I'm picking her up popsicles and I'm talking about reprogramming senses and that kind of stuff. And if somebody's senses aren't uh if her sense of hunger her sense of hunger actually is tied directly at this point to the stimulation of of things that actually come with taste. However, she doesn't have a sense of taste that she's conscious, consciously aware of. And as a result, um, her stomach is is responding, but her mind is not. That's kind of interesting. Her mind is not responding to the taste. Her stomach is, but her mind is not. So, anyways, other than that, um, yeah, I'm just uh, heading down to pick her, pick her up a couple of goodies, and I, I know that uh, the rest of us will reap in those rewards because I'll be able to have a popsicle as well. You know, she, I know she won't eat them all today, and you know, I'll, uh, I'll get like a variety pack or something like that of uh, varieties. She can't have anything red in it for um, not so obvious reasons. Uh, the colonoscopy is. They're interested in, you know, determining is there blood in the colon? Is there things that shouldn't be in there? Um, yada yada yada. And uh, so, anyways, anything that uh, gives a misreading is eliminated from the diet to to reinforce a a good solid uh, uh, pro What do you call them? It's not a surgery. It's a procedure. That's right. So, anyways, um, I'm, uh, I'm, as I said before, I'm playing Watch Dogs 2, and I'm playing it, um, there's the main storyline mission, and I'm seeing how far and how much I can actually do of the game, uh, without actually doing the main storyline, how, how far I can not just progress the character experientially, um, but also how far I can actually progress the, um, uh, progress or just just see what it, what I can see within the game and I it's kind of cool because I've actually seen quite a few things already that I hadn't seen the first pass through 
So this isn't saying that I'm, I'm going to want to replay it over and over again or anything like that. You know, I, I may actually play it again um, after this. Um, or, you know, especially when and if mods come out for it, you know, the ability to be able to make modifications. But modifications to this thing, um, I really can't see going that much further than modifications that are going to the uh, to Grand Theft Auto. You know, Grand Theft Auto, everything you can do in Grand Theft Auto um, is what you can do in Watch Dogs, with uh, very little exception and everything. I'm suspecting to some degree that uh, Watch Dogs actually is a mod of the Grand Theft Auto engine that's been stripped down and rebuilt and everything to create Watch Dogs. That's my suspicion, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and I suspect that's how a lot of games come into existence is basically they're stripped down versions of other things that have been retasked and it looks so substantially different but in this case here it's just like the only thing that's really different between the two you know is you can actually draw vectors in between different positions and everything so you can triangulate a single entity and that entity actually draws a line from you to that person and uh, that's actually something you can do out of the box with the Grand Theft Auto engine with minor modification so that's you know one thing that you can do within it and uh, the other thing is moving billboards um besides that the the big difference between the two games really isn't is surprisingly not that much when it comes down to the the physics and the graphics and that kind of stuff cars move the same um, everything has a tendency to act and react the same uh, the pedestrians and everything while they do have names and uh, they do have uh, certain characteristics and everything there's there's no persistence to them you know so in a general sense uh, uh, th uh, there is a little bit of persistence that actually exists outside the boundaries but like I said yesterday that persistence could actually be something that I as a programmer program so that's you know these are all different possibilities and everything which really leads me to believe it was a Grand Theft Auto engine to begin with so I mean that's a suspicion I'm not a hundred percent sure again so I don't wanna I mean, and that's actually really a good question when it comes down to a legal perspective, you know. Let's say they did use the core engine that actually was responsible for developing this application and everything. You know, and they actually took Grand Theft Auto, they took a, a pirated version that they ended up making modifications to, and and that's the end result is uh, Watch Dogs 2. You know, um, Ubisoft, you know, is a, you know, I mean, are they a hacking group? You know, and is DeadSec the moniker that they run under within hacking circles? It's hard to say. You know, it's all hard to say. You know, this world's definitely a little bit weirder under the covers, you know, than most people are ready to give it credit for. And um, The conspiracies that are actually existing out there are really kind of boring when it comes down to it. We need some new conspiracies. And uh, in my opinion, Watchdogs, uh, these guys have a... Uh, Ubisoft has a wonderful, wonderful story to tell. Um, but they definitely need to increase their artistic creativity and everything and make it so it's a little bit less um, sky is falling and a little bit more fun conspiratorially. Now, how do you actually make a conspiracy fun, though? That's kind of the golden question. You know, and um, that's actually the questions that I've been asking myself, too, is I'm uh, pondering how to actually develop this application and everything. So, you know, this, uh, this Watch Dogs version 5, you know, which... You know, I'm gonna, I'm uh, basically gonna rip off everything from intellectual property to 
Um, you know, to, I mean, from the concepts and everything. Um, I'm not going to rip it off. I'm just going to give credit and homage. You know, and I'm going to force them to skip over a generation. You know, so if they come out with the Watch Dogs 3 and 4, you know, by the time I come out with 5, you know, I'm going to make damn sure that they're going to sit there and say, you know what? This person, whoever it is that published this, or entity, whoever published this, this is good enough to actually keep underneath our name, and we'll keep it under our name, and you know what, we're going to reap some revenue from it as well. You know, and sure they will. You know, I have no doubt they will. But, for me, it's kind of the fun. The fun of it. So, putting something like this together and everything, I don't know. Who knows? So, in any case, I'm following some smoky ass old Ford, which is piping out excess of fumes into the atmosphere and everything. It fucking stinks. So, anyways, uh, otherwise, um, yeah, one of the things I was going to do, I think I talked about it before, was uh, taking magic cards and coming up with hacker ideas and everything. I'm writing a list of things I want to implement within uh, my version of Watch Dogs and everything. And I'm trying to think from a time-traveling perspective how I can actually do it. And one of the things I had thought about while doing that was the whole concept of changing somebody's opinion in the moment based on altering their past and everything. So, anyways, I'll get there. Coming back soon. Back again. So one thing I um I've been having happen a lot lately. I have a friend that uh, he's in the IT industry and everything. He's making three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand a year. You know, and he's he's basically where I was at nearly fifteen years ago in his career. And I'm not I. That's the whole thing is I enjoyed making the money I did when I did at that point and if I had if I had that option right now to do it again well not only would I work differently than I did before you know the work smarter not harder type thing but I would also I'd have a tendency to appreciate the things and probably do a lot more investing with the stuff that I, I did make, with the money I did make, you know, in contrast to what I was doing before. Um, unfortunately, uh, they, for some reason, this uh, country doesn't seem to appreciate the education, the, um, you know, and the misfits like myself, you know, when it comes down to the way that we think and everything, and, you know, I don't know, it is what it is. So, I, I myself, it's just like I, you know, um, I, I find it interesting um, that my job offers and job responsibilities have quite literally not changed in nearly 17 years, or very, um, very mildly changed. You know, and, and oddly enough, if they do include a, um, a pay range, you know, the pay range is typically in the order of uh, anywhere between 35 to 75 an hour, which, I mean, I know factually, you know, that, uh, that there's a number of different people that are making a great deal more with uh, far less education and experience than me. You know, so if economy and capitalism worked like it was supposed to, then uh, my pay should be commensurate with my level of education and experience, and it's certainly not. You know, so um, a person that actually has less education, less less experience than I, um, has is being offered, you know, jobs that are paying two, three times more than what I'm being paid. 
Yeah, you know, it is what it is. And it's actually among the reasons that keeps me not wanting to re-enter the job market. You know, there's been something um, that I myself am unsure what, which is preventing me from seeing um, opportunities which which are reflective of what I'm worth. And uh, it just doesn't make logical, rational sense. So why re-enter a work atmosphere, a, a work environment and everything, when it's clearly clearly rigged against me. You know, I don't know if it's my own mind that's actually doing this, you know, creating the situation, or if it's uh, something that's actually on the outside or a little combination of both and everything. Um, but what I am doing is I am, for some reason, all of a sudden started to receive um, intelligence analyst-type jobs and everything. So... For years, I, I'm, I'm sure you know this, I worked for the NSA, and uh, I most of the stuff that I did, I didn't, uh, you know, nobody had a clue who I was working for and everything. At the same time I did that, I also, um, I also had a full-time cover job as well, and um, the cover job, I mean, for the most part, I did still put 100% into, into that job, but I put 100% into both jobs. You know, so as a person and everything, I considered myself responsible for maintaining my my quote unquote secret identity. You know, along with uh, my my real work identity and everything. You know, but I asked my mom about two weeks ago too. I said, "Mom, don't you think it's mysterious that I never really talked about my job and everything?" She goes, "Well, I just thought your job was kind of boring, and uh, that's why you didn't want to talk about it." I said, "No, I mean it's not that it was boring. I mean, you know, I showed her the scar on my leg where I got shot and." And hungry, you know, where I was, uh, where I was, um, you know, taking some of the uh, the kids through. Uh, I shouldn't say kids, the people there in the military, on the military base. I was uh, basically doing classes on object-oriented programming and uh, and something called patterns and practices and that kind of stuff. You know, so I said, I mean, I was shot there on accident. It was friendly fire. Uh, um, you know, one of the uh, the MPs that was actually on the base and. His rifle bounced off of his leg and ended up ricocheting off the ground and bounced up into my leg. And, you know, while I was delayed about an hour to teach the class, uh, I still taught the class and uh, with a little bit of a limp. I mean, it certainly hurt and everything, but, you know, it wasn't life-threatening. It just extracted the bullet and I was in and out. And all I cared about was just basically getting uh, getting the stuff done that I had to get done and everything and not delaying it any longer than I, I should and everything because I wanted to have time to go to her. So, you know, that's, I mean, I'm more anxious about traveling than I am actually teaching the class and everything. How, how weird is that? But um, in any case, you know, I had two identities at the same time, and um, I was still underpaid. You know, I mean, I'm flat out being paid only, you know, the uh, only one I'm making over it, you know, on, on basically the full-time gig and everything. I'm undercover and, you know, more or less represent my country at the same time. And it's just like, wow, you know, how is it I can do this? You know, and, uh, and and make less money than what I was making when I was uh, actually a full-time consultant to everything back in the 1990s. You know, and see, and the funny thing is, I, it, apparently my world hasn't adjusted to compensate me according to, you know, the education experience that I have. Because for all means, and you know, all means, I should actually be paid $400,000 plus a year. You know, there, that's no joke, you know. I'm, in a lot of cases, doing the job of what most... Um, intermediate, uh, beginner to intermediate, if if not upper echelon lawyers are doing with some of the shit that I'm doing, you know, so, and those lawyers are compensated in a million dollar range and plus, you know, not only that, but I was helping out CEOs and making sure the CEOs could do their fucking job right, 
You know, so why I shouldn't be paid $400,000 plus a year is ludicrous. You know, I think it's nothing more than excuses being made by a public that just flat out doesn't understand what, what a programmer is, let alone that, uh, you know, how I work and how I function and that kind of stuff. So in any case, um, I, I'm starting to receive, oddly enough, um, new enlistments, new enrollments for intelligence analyst jobs and uh, jobs in the security sector and everything. Jobs that, which again, that I did in the past, but I'm just flat out not interested in now. And I just really find it kind of interesting. Why am I suddenly receiving these jobs? Well, I'm not you know, I've really got to think about uh, life and things in a different manner than I did before. I'm at a different place, not just uh, mentally, but also physically. Um, I suspect that this world is not like the world that I left behind and everything, particularly when I went through that transition, you know, um, a couple years back and everything. And I suspect that uh, as a result, the communication chains and the way things are delivered to me don't quite function the way that they used to. You know, and here's a for instance. I've taken my resume off, and my resume has been off the uh, job search board. Um, for about uh, a little, about a year now, and in particular, um, one job board um, or one email account. Uh, I've I've got basically at this point probably half a dozen different email accounts, but uh, one I haven't used in literally 12 years. Well, for some reason, I still get new solicitations and everything under that old old email. Now, this is indicative of, of the nature of reality and everything and how, you know, to me, um, some things um, may still see, you know, like an echo in time, like me seeing Watch Dogs 2, you know, the world that exists through the eyes of these characters in Watch Dogs 2 is considerably less advanced uh, than mine when it comes down to the technology and the social systems and also the visual systems. Um, while it looks pretty, I mean, it looks absolutely gorgeous, it still definitely doesn't look as, uh, as believable as my reality that I'm actually immersed in right now. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to the visuals and the aesthetics, um, it just doesn't match what I'm in now. Well, it's also my belief that um, while I may exist in one particular version of Earth, um, that there's others that exist in other other versions of Earth that may be living in like a Groundhog Day situation and everything, where they're doing the same thing day in, day out. They're living on old information, making um, choices, and they're, they're not necessarily uh, aware that they're actually in this loop. Well, I get the same communication from different individuals, and this is my suspicion on how I actually see things. So I see them, um, see this one individual that may be sending me the same solicitation, you know, 5, 10, 20 times and everything. Um, I see this one individual as many different individuals. That's how my mind actually separates that one entity out. This one entity in a causal time loop and like a Groundhog Day fashion is just basically sending the same email based on the same information, making very few changes to their life because they're not aware of the whole, you know, looping mechanism of time and that they may be living on old information and that kind of stuff. You know, so... Anyways, it's my suspicion, you know, um, with new information, new ideas, new mindset, comes uh, the necessity to actually alter the perception. And 
in a, in a literal sense, reprogram the way that I actually look at the world. And part of that reprogramming process, you know, is the podcast. You know, basically I'm speaking to myself, and I know it's causing a ripple effect out there to provide me information. That ripple effect actually comes back at me through new information and allows me to actually, you know, make decisions and make better informed decisions or different decisions to basically take me on the path, you know, of the goals and, and desires I'm, I'm, you know, set about, set about to achieve. So, anyways, I'm back. I got to do some cool driving today. Fred Myers twice. So, anyways, that's about it for right now. I'll be back later. Back again. Wow, I fucked that one up. I just talked for nearly 30 minutes. And the gist of the conversation is I, I deserve Rachel and Jackie. Because I created it the situations that put them in my life. And the confidence is something I just needed to have to know that those two are my soulmates. I'll experience many soulmates throughout my life, but these two in particular because I was branching away from duality. The existence of a one-man, one-woman type situation going into new kinds of relationships and everything. What do they call it? The Trinity. The Trinity is the branching, the emergence, the evolution of the duality of Adam and Eve. Me, Jack, and Rachel. That's the Trinity. I deserve it. And when it comes down to it, time and space, and the concept of reincarnation, makes it so each one can live a million, a trillion lives, a billion lives. Four trillion years, ten trillion years, and ultimately, they will make the decision of their own free will to come back to me. And I'll simply have awaited, from my perspective, it'll only be a couple years. But from their perspective, where time moved differently, it could have been a lot longer. But ultimately, they'll make the choice of their own free will to come back to me or to come to me as the Rachel and Jackie that I fell in love with and they'll realize who I am and why I chose them and I'll agree and go on and it probably won't be a fairy tale but it will certainly be fun in any case the reason I deserve Rachel and Jackie is because I chose them. It really is that simple. Anyways, wish I would have heard the rest of it, but apparently my recording was paused. Sorry. In any case, have a good night. <laughs>